And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So, you know, I try to provide a great guest and wonderful conversation every single week. But you know me, like any good parent, I can't possibly play favorites. Except for today. I have one of my favorite guests of all time is back on the show. And that is Jonathan Redbird Dover, who you may know from the Paranormal Rangers. He was a a ranger for the Navajo Nation. And in the early part uh, of this millennia, this century, he and his partner, Stan Milford, went out and investigated paranormal occurrences on the Navajo Nation with the scrutiny and rigor of a federal investigator. And I think that he is extraordinarily unique in this case. And, you know, we talked about skinwalkers and Bigfoot in our previous conversation. This time, hopefully, we're going to get into UAPs and his time as a petroglyph expert on the show, The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. And it is always a pleasure and an honor to have him on the show. So I'm looking forward to this conversation with Jonathan Redbird Dover. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You and Stan are both a couple of my favorite guests for several reasons, but not the least of which is you talk about stuff that's near and dear to my heart, stuff I want to believe in, and you two are easily the most credible people talking about this. So I'm super excited, not only for our conversation today, but to introduce you into our two-timers club, because this is the second time you've been on the show, uh, and you're a Hall of Fame guest right out of the box. So how does that make you feel to be in, in, in my uh, two-timers club? Well, uh, I don't know how to react to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, both me and Stan tend to stay uh, pretty humble. Yeah, uh, We're just, we were, you know, for all, all of this stuff, we were just doing our jobs. Right. And... They they were assigned, mm-hmm. and uh, we didn't actually go out with the idea of hey let's get famous. Um, we went out with the idea that uh, this information needs to be shared, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we have a duty to to kind of open the pull the curtain back and show you a little bit of the wizard behind the in the box. Well, and and quite a wizard it is, John. Uh, quite a wizard it is. And speaking of the box, uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, the video version of this, you got a Fort Knox safe behind you. What's going on in there? What, do, what secrets are you keeping behind you, John? Well, uh, I'm at a friend's house. Her name is Marianne. <laughs> yeah. And she <laughs> is a retired police officer. Okay. Um, so we tend to get together. Uh, we're down here to help... Uh, uh, I don't know if you know Dr. Lynn Katai. Uh, name sounds familiar. Yeah, she does the uh, Phoenix Lights documentary. Okay. And we're we're here to uh, help her out with the uh, annual showing at the at the Harkins in uh, Phoenix mm-hmm. or in in Scottsdale. So uh, we're going to be with her today or uh, tomorrow, I should say. Or yeah. S- what day is this? Saturday. Saturday. Okay, the 18th. so tomorrow. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, well, so we'll be with her tomorrow. Yeah. Well, we didn't. You and I have talked about missing time before, so I hope you're not having one of those <laughs> incidents right I now. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> who knows what goes on out there? Well, this is super exciting. So, uh, you know, quickly uh, for people who don't know, you can check out our, our previous episode. I'll put links to it. Uh, but you are uh, you are Jonathan Redbird Dover of the previously retired uh, officer of the Navajo Nation Rangers, and uh, you know for for several years you investigated some of the paranormal. Uh, events and cases that were there and came up with just some incredible evidence. And I have to say, I want to give you, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but you and I spoke long before you were on Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, uh, before, you know, you were making appearances all over on the Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. And I remember I found you because I was looking at uh, a book of, it was like a, you know, a book of like weird stuff in the U.S., and there was this very small little blurb about you guys in the bottom right-hand corner. And it said, you know, there are these two guys in the Navajo Nation who are investigating all sorts of paranormal activity, you know, with the scrutiny of a law enforcement agency. And it was just this little blurb. And there wasn't much written about you guys. It was very small. And, and, you know, people weren't taking it very seriously. And I just thought this was the coolest thing in the world. And I had to get in touch with you guys. And, you know, from that little blurb in that book uh, to now being, you know, all over the place, I think this is where you belong because the work that you guys did, uh, I mean, it's it's really cutting edge stuff. And I think stuff that, um, you know, as you said, you pulled back, you're showing us the wizard and and you did find the wizard. So uh, you guys have had quite a trajectory. I bet it's kind of a surprise to you. Uh, yeah, it is a surprise. Uh, Stan initially, uh, he's still working as of this day and still still an investigator doing uh, other cases. So uh, he's no longer with the Rangers. He's retired from the Rangers. Um, we never actually set out to do any of this. We, you know, it just all came about and it's been surprising. Mm-hmm. Just kind of fell in your lap, if I remember correctly. <laughs> kind of, you guys were the guy. You two were there when this had to be assigned, and your boss, I guess the chief, wanted to take things seriously, and you two were the guys taking it seriously. It's basically that's the story, right? In a nutshell. Yeah, in a nutshell. Kind of, yeah. Uh, we we still argue as to who is Mulder. <laughs> <laughs> It's always the everyone wants to be Fox Mulder, right? And, you know, Fox right. Mulder, you know, Redbird Dover. I mean, there's something about that instinctual connection to nature, which is what sets you guys apart. Um, because what I what I there's so many things about you guys that I think are important and interesting. And not the least of which is your connection um, to your indigenous heritage. You know, you, you are a Navajo uh, by descent. Uh, you grew up in Los Angeles. And I think the Navajo culture and the events of the Navajo, uh, you know, on the Navajo Nation and in the Uinta Basin, which hopefully we'll get to as well, the approach that you guys take, uh, the, the stuff that's rooted in your culture, I think gives a very interesting perspective because, you know, the people who have been there the longest are the ones who have been experiencing this stuff for the longest period of time and really have unique insights that I think modern eyes tend to avoid or ignore. And I think that that really gave you an advantage when you were investigating this stuff. Well, one of the things that we found out is that uh, a lot of this is absolutely uh, baked into the culture. Mm -hmm. right. So uh, it's it's already accepted. Uh, Bigfoot uh, has come around 
and Navajos have been told, leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, don't don't look at it. It exists. That's mm-hmm. all you need to know. Don't right. look at it because if it looks at you, it can take over your mind. Right. And and uh, so uh, we've got stories, you know, going back to the 1700s uh, about Bigfoot. Um, hauntings the same way, you know, uh, Navajos uh, bury their dead, after, you know, within four days. Okay. Uh, so that so that the spirit doesn't come back and uh, want to stay here because it, it misses this place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you have these haunting things. Uh, UFOs have always been here. They're, they're attached to the sky people that, mm-hmm. uh, that the Yebichi uh, dancers represent. And interestingly enough, the Yebichi dancers, uh, they have a clown, just like the Apache fire dancers. A clown? They have a clown. There's okay. usually about 10, 10 to 12 of them. Okay. And they represent the, the gods and, you know, who came from the sky. Mm-hmm. The clown represents the five-fingered people. And okay. the clown represents you and me, you know, uh, right. humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, he's the one that doesn't listen to what the gods have to say. He's the one that's always doing something contrary and screwing up and making life miserable. And uh, that sounds like thought, us. Wow, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. How, how appropriate. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, the, there's a lot that's uh, uh, in Navajo culture already. And it's it's described by everybody, by historians as myth mm-hmm. because because we didn't have a written system of writing, you know, putting this stuff down. Right. But we have a, a, an oral tradition that says that if you're taught something, it has to be repeated exactly. Right. Well, and that's the important point. I wanted to, to hit on that because that is kind of what's again, it's this unique cultural perspective that that you bring, which is, you know, in in the Navajo tradition and, and in several indigenous traditions is that it is an oral tradition. But it's not it's not like an oral tradition like we have today, because, you know, as everyone's seen with gossip, as soon as you say one thing, after it goes through three people, it's a completely different story. And that's not how it works with you, right? I mean, when when a story is being told, it's told specific words, specific order, no embellishment for entertainment purposes. You're not trying to impress or to entertain. This is factual. I mean, this is it's an oral. It's a book. I mean, you're that. So that tradition is important, especially when it comes to some of these more unique and, and you know, Quote, quote unquote paranormal events that there's something much more to this than simply a made up story or a creation myth. Right. The uh, the medicine men, when they study, they, they study from an early age, maybe mm-hmm. eight or nine years old, mm-hmm. and uh, they're taught their whole lives. Uh, one ceremony, such as uh, uh, enemy way dance will require over three nights about 240 to 250 songs to be sung in the exact right order in the exact right words. Right. If the song, people pay a lot of money for medicine men to do this. Mm-hmm. And if they get any of those words or phrases or orders wrong, it negates the entire ceremony and you know the, it's, it'll cause a lot of problems. 
So I, I have to ask a question. So I was recently at a concert, right? And so this singer, I'd been joking with a friend of mine uh, about how singers never seem to, to screw up on stage. And this guy, you know, he's, he's probably sang the song, you know, thousands of times. And in the middle of the song, he just forgot the words, right? It happens even to professionals. Has that ever, have you ever seen that happen where a medicine man went through and got to, you know, song 222 and goofed up, forgot the words. And he was like, oh, and everyone, like there's just a groan, a collective groan in the audience. Like, oh, I got to do this all over again. Does that ever happen? Or are you pretty, uh, pretty solid? I've, I've actually never heard of that happening. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. That's how good I'll, you guys I'll are. today, Although today we're getting specialist medicine men, uh, kind of like eye, nose, and throat specialists. Right, that, right, that right. We have. And, and uh, the medicine men today, because they didn't learn from an early age, uh, they actually can only specialize in one or two ceremonies. Uh, oh. because of that. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, look, uh, you know, if you you got to know where your skills are and if it is that important to do it in that order and not screw up, maybe don't reach for something you can't do. That actually makes sense to me. You know, um, I mean, it's a little bit of the watering right. down of the traditions, but maybe the specialization makes those ceremonies even better because they are really good at those ceremonies. Is that kind of the thought or? Yeah, that's that's okay. how I look at it. Okay. All right. I think that's the right way to look at it. I think so. I mean, you know, even with, you know, modern priests, they're, they're reading out of a book usually, um, you know, and so this, this, this memory becomes important and, and the, the collection of history, uh, will become important because in our previous, you know, in our, in our previous conversation, we talked about Navajo witchcraft, skinwalkers and Bigfoot, which some of the best stories, you know, I did a whole episode, uh, with Jeffrey Meldrum, who's an academic Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, who studies uh, Bigfoot and Sasquatch. And there's a lot to it. Uh, you know, it's always one of the things that's I've never, you know, growing up, I never really bought into. But there's a lot of really interesting evidence, not that, you know, not only his academic work, but your stories uh, are have really turned me around on that. But I want to talk about, you know, some of the, the current work you are doing. You know, we, you, as I mentioned, you were on the Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, which is a, a, a show that I've gotten into. But I was the Skinwalker Ranch stuff. Uh, I, you know, I read the book by George Knapp, and that whole area is really fascinating. And on the show, I thought it was it was kind of cool that you were brought on as a petroglyph expert. And we had talked in our previous conversation about how you were specially trained in archaeological crimes. And I thought that it was interesting that they brought you on for that. So how did you how did you get that gig and how does it fit in with your previous training? Well, um, I did archaeological law enforcement for about 27 years. OK. And uh, in order to do that, you have to do work with archaeologists. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to map out uh, with using a plane table and elevate uh, an archaeological site and record it. And uh, I had on several occasions done that. But more importantly, I was able to date the sites accurately, uh, whether they were Pueblo 1, 2, 3, or 4, or even Basket Maker 1, mm -hmm. 2, or 3. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the uh, Anasazi type uh, and Basket Maker cultures. So uh, I was well, you know, working directly with archaeologists, learning from them on the job. And uh, and then going out and, and finding these artifacts that were being put up for sale. Oh, like you mean like looted and put up for sale? That's right. right. Okay. 
And and so, you know, I've worked with the U.S. Forest Service and uh, uh, different organizations, you know, to to mm-hmm. retrieve these artifacts. Uh, we've retrieved them from New York and Chicago and uh, other places and actually got some pretty valuable stuff back. Wow. I mean, that, I mean, it's it's such a specialized uh, discipline, right? I mean, because I, I, I'm guessing your background from an educational standpoint, like you didn't, you don't have a, a college degree in archaeology. So this is on the job training, right? I mean, you're going around with professionals learning how to do this very specialized skill, but also you have your cultural background, uh, which obviously helps. And, and so the, this petroglyph, it was really interesting because petroglyphs are the most permanent form of communication and record keeping, you know, the oral tradition you're, you've got it in. It's, it's only as good as a human's brain. Right. Uh, but with petroglyphs, people right. are, are they're drawing things. It, this is for all time. I mean, that, that, I'm guessing that was the thought. There's no eraser, you know, unless you scrape everything off. I mean, this. So, so the things that are put in and that are, uh, you know, that are immortalized on these rock uh, in these cave paintings and petroglyphs and on the rock walls, they meant something. This was a serious event or uh, a serious myth or story that had to be preserved. So when you start seeing some of these kind of strange, like you mentioned spirals, you start seeing spirals, you know, not only in the pictographs, but also in the archaeological sites. When you start seeing things like that, symbology becomes important. Uh, So tell me a little bit about that and how the symbology is the same and different across the various tribes. Well, uh, a lot of the symbology is very similar. Okay. And these uh, these these carvings were actually made as a way to show um, which direction. Uh, there were like trail markers. There were uh, places where they would stop and have religious ceremonies. Uh, there were depictions of things that they saw. Uh, they would show you where the game was, where the water uh, sources were. Uh, mm-hmm. There was there was a whole range of things. They would even show you. Uh, which clans came through. Uh, the spiral really? was e- uh, originally used as a sign of migration. Okay. And what I've done is I've reinterpreted that in light of uh, what we know about the uh, the UFO UAP phenomenon and mm-hmm. said that, uh, you know, the, the migration could have been, as in the Navajos, through portals, through different dimensions. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because that's still migration, right? So you're, it's still the same concept. Right. It's just reinterpreted to show that they came up through several uh, different worlds uh, to this world. And uh, the last world they came up with was through um, a hole in the sky where they had to put something up there and climb up into into mm-hmm. what they call the shining world. So uh, I looked at that and I thought, are they talking about a portal, uh, a dimensional mm-hmm. gate of some kind? And it, it makes sense that it wouldn't be on the ground or wouldn't be at, uh, where we could step into it. It would be, right, right. you know, random. Yeah. Well, w- would it be random, though? I mean, wouldn't it be in a specific location? It could have been in a specific location, but the topography may have changed over e- eons. I see. Right. Okay. So then, so then, what you what you're saying is that the original Navajo people came through a portal. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the best explanation for it because they talk about several uh, three other worlds that they came through. 
And okay. they, and then they come into this world. Uh, they call it the shining world uh, mm -hmm. in the place of emergence, which is Deneta and uh, up near the Four Corners area. Yeah, I looked at that and I said, you know, what if they came through a portal? It, it yeah. just fits. Well, I also know that, you know, in a lot of the stuff that you've mentioned both to me and on the various uh, projects you've been involved in, you are really convinced of these extra dimensional portals, which is was interesting to me because, again, it's like Bigfoot, right? Like I, from a scientific standpoint, you know, I do a whole nother podcast about um, about pop culture, science and portals, wormholes. These are all things that we kind of routinely discuss. And, you know, for fun and conversation and from physics, they are they're cool to talk about. But I've never really thought that they existed here. I didn't think they were, you know, if they were connected to the to UAP UFO phenomenon is maybe for travel to come out of, you know, whatever. But I, I didn't really understand if it really worked. And so when I heard some of this stuff, it's again, like Bigfoot, I was skeptical, but but open minded to hearing what it was. As I've watched, as I've read about Skinwalker Ranch, as I've watched the shows there, as I've heard your stories, and then I watch you kind of describe what you were seeing there, I've kind of become more open to it. Uh, it's, it's a very, when you start having, you know, there are so many weird connections that I think it makes it intriguing for someone like me to discuss and look into, uh, but be skeptical about. But I think it's those same elements that make it hard for the average person to really believe. You know, the connection between Bigfoot and UAPs. W what is that? How does that how does that make sense? You know, uh, wh why is it that, you know, um, you know, on Skinwalker Ranch that things see they, they seem to not be able to work in certain areas without being affected by a specific frequency. You know, uh, there seems to be things you, you mentioned seeing UAP coming in and out of solid rock mesas. You know, yeah. these things seem to defy logic. And yet the people telling these stories are very credible. So either they're completely mistaken and hallucinating or there's something very, very strange going on that requires a lot more investigation. Well, as I started studying more and more about this, uh, looking for answers, uh, mm -hmm. I came upon uh, a guy that's well known, uh, Nikola Tesla. And right, yeah. And uh, he had a, a theory called his 369 theory. Uh, and uh, he said that three, if you take zero, one, and two and add them up, they, they equal three. If you take uh, six, it's a multiple of three. And if mm -hmm. you take nine, it's the first prime number. He mm -hmm. was so uh, fixated on these numbers that his his apartment had to have a number that would be divisible by three, six, or nine. Um, okay. He would get to work uh, downtown and walk around the building three times before he entered. Uh, things like that. So he was OC, a little OCD, a little touch of the OCD. Right, right. You know, yeah. pen, penny, sure. not, not, not penny. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> so yeah. he... Uh, he came up with this, uh, he, he gave attributes to each of those numbers. He said three represents energy, six represents frequency, nine represents mm -hmm. vibration. And okay. I, I looked at Skinwalker Ranch and determined that three, they have energy there. The ground is mm -hmm. conductive. We don't know if it's a battery or if it's a capacitor. And if it's a capacitor, it can store energy and release it under certain circumstances, uh, in some right. cases, rather violently. Mm -hmm. uh, they have frequency, which is the 1.6 gigahertz. 
mm-hmm. what they don't have yet is the amplitude of that frequency or the um, the vibration, mm-hmm. and and uh, that's what they need to find find out more about uh, possible interdimensional gates. Um, and that's according to Tesla's theory. I think there's a lot to be said uh, about that. It it just starts drawing everything together, and I absolutely welcome people to be skeptical mm-hmm. because I'm skeptical. You know, I, I look at it and I look at it. Okay, this is a good theory. Maybe down right. the line somewhere uh, that theory will go out the window and I'll say, no, maybe that was wrong. Uh, right. Here's a better theory. <laughs> but yeah. but we we vibrate, you know, we're, we, we're made out of, out of cells. Mm-hmm. cells. Cells are composed of molecules. Molecules... Mm-hmm are have atoms mm-hmm. and beyond that you know you get into quarks and everything else but you know gets crazy it, gets really crazy right yeah. what holds those atoms together you know and and there are frequencies we our heartbeat set what 4.7 uh, hertz and mm-hmm. uh, sounds right so everything has a frequency and I'm sure the military would love to find out more about it because they could find disruptors that would just create a whole new frequency and cause your atoms to scatter. Yeah. What a, what a <laughs> the military would love that. They would love that. <laughs> and, and in the case of the Skinwalkers, we found out that the military had been coming to our shows. Now we give them a shout out every time. Uh, but they, they would sit there with clipboards and be writing notes and then leave before the show was over and you know the presentation and so now we give them a shout out and we tell them you know welcome but we don't trust you because we're native (laughs) right well i mean that's what skinwalker ranch was i mean it you know it was being explored and, and investigated by uh you know I think it was the DOD through through NIDS. You know, Robert Bigelow was they were doing all sorts of uh, right. investigative work there. Black, I mean, you know, black ops stuff. It wasn't being public and wasn't funded publicly. I don't believe, but that I mean, th- there's something going on. You know, uh, and and you know, string theory is all about vibration at our core. You know, there there is there is a theory that says that everything is just a vibration. You know, E equals MC squared is that mass and energy are in completely interchangeable. You know, if you start combining right. these two things, you can, you know, uh, with uh, there's some very interesting properties and things you can play with when it comes to frequency and vibration. These very simple ideas that can do very complex things. But w- so that's all, you know, kind of advanced technology, right? Electri- you know, electricity, electromagnetic manipulation. This is all stuff that happens on Skinwalker Ranch that is kind of interesting to me that, you know, b- both George Knapp and, you know, Travis Taylor, these guys who have investigated Skinwalker Ranch say that they're not, the, f- the fallacy there is that you're in control. There's some other sentience that's in control of what's happening there. And it seems to be manipulating electronic devices. But what I love about, you know, kind of what you do and, and, and the, the thing that you bring is that when it comes to the indigenous people who occupied the area originally, they didn't have advanced technology, right? The petroglyphs, right. The, these archaeological sites that you're looking at there, you know, in the last episode of season three, I, I'm, yeah, I'm doing a big promotion for Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, but it captured me, John. I don't mean to do it, but it captured me. But they show this, um, you know, you had investigated this ancient archaeological site and you saw that it was in the shape of a spiral. You mentioned the portals. There's this rock with a hole in it. Uh, they later on did some advanced telemetry with a drone, getting um, a hole 
t- uh, you know, t- uh, topological, uh, topological, what is that? Where you see, um, it's the word I'm looking for. Can't think of it. But oh. you could basically take, you yeah. know, all of the, um, from a 3D perspective, what's going on in that whole area. And what they found were these strange anomalies that occurred that looked like something like smoke going up into the sky on two distinct points that they couldn't figure out. There's nothing in the sky there. And the site that you went to had this hole in it. And those two areas were linked through that spiral archaeological site, which tells me that if we're going to uh, we're going to I'm going to buy into this for the sake of conversation. So let's say we believe that there is something going on there. It is a vortex. There is, you know, some kind of field there. It is interesting to me that people, you know, the indigenous people were able to not only capture it, but create a site surrounding it. So they knew about it and the technology that they had would not be interfered with. So in some ways, an analog approach here might be the best way to go because it's not affected by, you know, all of this advanced, you know, electronics. It's, you know, it's kind of like in the movies when you see, uh, you know, the cowboys fighting off the aliens, right? That they're using the technology so primitive that they have an advantage. One of those kind of weird situations. Right, right. Uh, One of the things that I was really happy about being able to do with that Mm. that, uh, particular episode was that there's a long-standing romantic story okay. that says that when the Navajos came back from the Long Walk, the Utes had provided scouts for the military to round them up uh, because they were traditional enemies. Right. And so the romantic story is that the Navajos came back, and after they came back, they got medicine men together and they cursed the Ute land mm-hmm. and caused skinwalkers to appear there. Right. Um what I'm finding out from the historical and archaeological record is that these sites there with the Fremont people go back uh, 700, 900 years. Hmm. And uh, so they were seeing phenomenon there, and they put this this place there to have ceremonies to in, in... in their parlance to keep the evil, you know, on one side. Right. And away from them. So they, they just stayed away. Um, but they would they would have religious ceremonies there to probably uh, try to keep that on that side in case it was going to spread. Uh, so they knew something was different. Right. And that tells me that that, that romantic story goes out the window um, that this has always been there. Well, and I think that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the Winchester Mystery House is kind of like this as well. There's one story about how, you know, that she built this house to avoid ghosts and everything. And I think that those are ways to sell tickets and they're ways to really quickly sum up, you know, the story of the Winchester House to say, oh, well, the land's cursed and skinwalkers are there. It's kind of an easy way, as you said, a romantic way to kind of sum up everything. And there's a little bit, you know, it's kind of one of those half truths because, you know, the, the Navajo and the Utes were they were at war. Uh, they, you know, as you've mentioned in several times, they, they really hated each other. These were, you know, arch enemies. And so that story can you can buy into it. But I don't think it really tells the full story because it adds this mystical element that, you know, it was cursed by the people. But I think, as you said, I think there's something much older and much more technologically advanced that's going on there. Something that that is, you know, been there for a very long time, much longer than than the 1800s or whatever. Right. And the other thing that I found out is that, uh, you know, we always say that 
we think we're we're smart because right. we have digital watches. <laughs> right. I know I think I'm smart, but definitely not. You know, and and yet, you know, and we can fly and we can do all these things. Mm-hmm. We can go to the moon. Mm-hmm. But old the the old elderly Navajos that I've run into in my career, they knew the names of the stars. They had Navajo names for all of them. Mm. They knew the constellations. They knew of constellations that you could not see with the naked eye hmm. before they had telescopes and astronomy and everything else before all that came out yeah. there. They knew about these constellations. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's like, who told them? How did they know? Right. You know, was the sky that much clearer that they could see this stuff? Um, right. There, there, there's no telling. But I'm seeing that. There's a vast wealth of knowledge that is slowly disappearing. And and we think that we have more knowledge. I think we're kind of getting stupider as we go uh, <laughs> because we're we're missing. And who's to say that they didn't know how to interact with these portals back then? Oh, interesting. Okay. That's an interesting thought. I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense because as we get more technology, I mean, look at it now. I, You know, I always rail against the iPhone, even though I've got one right next to me. Uh, you know, the iPhone is kind of it's a good and a bad thing. Right. I mean, it's connected everyone in the world, but it also provides this distraction that is shortening our attention span and, you know, taking you know, pulling us away from from the real world. Right. We're so drawn into this digital world. And I think with technology comes there's always a there's a plus side and a downside to everything there's consequences there's pros and cons right, right? and so you know the technology's great I love technology, uh, but I think there is an advantage and this is kind of what I, what I'm the point I'm trying to make here is there is an advantage to you know the ancient people being able to not have a, a phone that's distracting them the sky is their entertainment that is their television set right and so when that happens right. you pay so much more attention to the to the details things we don't pay attention to anymore you know was the sky darker i don't know maybe these are you know predictions people were making based on how the stars are maybe they were seeing patterns that we're not seeing now even with you know advanced math you know when it comes down to living on that land for so long you know it so well that as you mentioned there's people are you know carving cave paintings that are telling you basically a map of the area. Go here for food, go here for water. You know everything so well. And I think that there's such a distinct advantage to knowing your area that we just don't have anymore with all this modern technology. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now we now we rely on uh, navigation programs to get where we're going. Right. And we don't even use maps anymore, John. Yeah. And more than once, uh, I've ended up in the wrong parking lot in the, you know, in the city, <laughs> right. yeah. uh, you know, yeah. saying you are here and I'm going, no, I'm not. Right. <laughs> so, you know, no, it, it happens. I mean, so I think there's there's an advantage to that connection. Uh, but, you know, the other thing uh, I wanted to, to speaking of connections, I want to connect it to, to UAP and UFO, not only stuff that, that, you know, we see on Skinwalker Ranch, the connection to these portals, but also stuff that you've seen, because there is when you start hearing, you know, if when you first hear a fantastical story, our logical mind tends to say either disbelieve it or, you know, they maybe someone saw something else or maybe they mistook, you know, uh, something in the sky for, you know, whatever. You, you start to make excuses as to why this this fantastical phenomenon can't exist. But when you start seeing repeated, you know, repeated stories by credible people with very similar 
uh, similar story points. You know, the same things keep happening. The stuff we see at Skinwalker Ranch, the stuff you've told me about, uh, you know, these are, I want to talk about some of these events that you've encountered because I think as you start repeating it and, and investigating it the way that you do, you start to see patterns that are very difficult to ignore. I think I told you about, I'm not sure if I did or not, um, Right after, in 2000, our first uh, major Bigfoot investigation up along the San Juan River, mm-hmm. uh, I was on my way back home, and uh, I didn't get back to uh, the uh, southwestern portion of the reservation from, from the Sheprock area until about 2 in the morning. Okay. And so I'm at a place called uh, Indian Wells. And as I drove through, there's a big uh, dip there that we, we, the officers call it Sugar Bowl. Okay. <laughs> just because it's, it's, it's a big valley where the road goes through. Sure. So um, on the other side of the Sugar Bowl, uh, I saw what, what looked like a, a street light out on the, uh, to my right on the north side of the of Route 15. Okay. And as I'm driving, uh, this, this light looked like it was green. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, you know, hey, uh, mercury vapor, sodium vapor, you know, some kind of uh, uh, outdoor street light mm-hmm. that's just, you know, glowing pretty bright. Right. And as I went down the road, uh, I started seeing this thing behind me. And I realized that you know, I'm being followed. Hmm. But it's not a it's not a headlight. And I'm the only one out on the road. Uh, there was there was nobody either direction coming, hmm. you know. Right. So, so I'm by myself, two o'clock in the morning, I'm seeing this thing just come up, you know, I'm going up and down these hills mm-hmm. and it keeps popping up behind me about maybe a hundred yards behind. And now I'm really watching it, really paying close attention. That's pretty close. That's a football field. Just for people listening, that's a foot. That's it's far enough away, but it's also close enough to be uncomfortable with it. Right. So. I looked at it and I thought, should I turn my truck around and go confront it? <laughs> and then really? I thought, and, and I thought, well, this is just like people, you know, we like to, you know, let's shoot it. Let's poke it with a stick. Let's do something. Sure. You know, this is a male thing. Right. <laughs> so, so I said, no, I, I says, um, the best thing to do is just keep driving. So as I got, about uh, 10 miles or 12 miles down the road, I come to a little town called Delcon. Okay. And Delcon is well lit. It's a little community. So I'm looking at this thing as I'm getting about four or five miles to Delcon. And I see it veer off, you know, to the left. Okay. And it goes over. Now, I've patrolled that area for years and years. I know every dirt road in there. Mm-hmm. And this thing went over the fence, uh, a five-strand barbed wire fence. And I know there's no road there for it to go through. Okay. And then it continued on at an angle, angling away from me, and went off uh, on top of a mesa about maybe two miles away. Mm -hmm. And it got on top of the mesa, and the thing turned red. Hmm. So now, now I'm really paying attention because I'm feeling a little bit uneasy. I can imagine. So. Red means danger, right? Typically, typically it does. <laughs> so, yeah. So, as I drove, I went through Delcon, kind of lost sight of it. But then, I, as I got out on the other side of Delcon, 
uh, everything got pitch black again with just my headlights on the highway. And I was able to see it again, and it was paralleling my course on the south side of, of my vehicle on the driver's side. So one quick question here. So how long is this up to this point? Is this 10 minutes, 20 minutes? How long has this been going on? This is uh, at this point about 15 minutes. Okay. And then uh, from from Delcom to State Route 87 is another 10 miles. Okay. And, and it's paralleling me that far. Mm-hmm. And then... As I go past the intersection there, there's, a, there's stop signs there, uh, and, and that's where it crosses State Route 87 coming north from Winslow and going to Second Mesa. Okay. It, uh, I continue on, and it's still following me for about another five or seven miles down the road. Wow, okay. And, and you know, just paralleling my course. And at this point, I'm thinking – Okay, uh, am I going to get abducted? Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you know what's what's going on yeah, here? Right. You know, it's, I have a firearm, but you know, should I even bother? Right. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of a bad way to do a first contact. You know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Pull a, pull a gun out and start shooting. Yeah. You know, we come in peace, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I just I just kept going and says, you know, I'm just going to keep watching it, but I felt. That was the only time in my whole career I felt uneasy about something. Hmm. And as I kept going past about five to seven miles, this thing, as I was watching it, it just faded out and disappeared. Really? Just gone? Yeah. Just just slowly faded out. Huh. And I thought, okay, it's gone. You know, I can continue with my trip. <laughs> and and I kept going. Um I wasn't going to stop. I wasn't going to, you know, get out and get get jumped on or anything else. Right. You know, I was just going to keep going. <laughs> right. Well, those situations, I mean, I think I think the natural instinct, you know, your instinct to turn around and confront it, that does feel, you know, it feels natural. You know, I mean, as human beings, you want to know what is this thing following you? It's an anomaly. I mean, this is something that you don't encounter. I mean, maybe you you encounter it more than most people, but it's not something that a typical person encounters all the time. So I do understand that instinct. But also what it's doing is so foreign to what happens in everyday life that what are the odds that it's, you know, that there are good intentions? You know, I mean, I think that that's the other question. And if it's following when someone's following your car, even if it was, you know, a a truck or a car following you on a solitary road at two in the morning, your first instinct isn't going to be, I bet they come in peace. You know, I think that that's just a natural human instinct. Right. 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 And, you know, I don't want to do anything provocative. Sure. Uh, because obviously it, it, the thing was about the size of a basketball. And and you could see the, the ground light up under it as it was traveling maybe six feet off the ground. Oh, interesting. Okay, so it was much – oh, I see. So it was much closer to the ground, and you could see that it was giving off light. And that's not something that – is around. I mean, that's not something that humans are used to seeing because I don't think that is possible with our current technology. Right. And and that's technology that we don't have. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I've, I've never seen any mention before or since of anything like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I get home and I and I I'm going, wow, you know, 
I think it was shortly after that that I decided to get a, a dash cam. Um, <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> because I was thinking, boy, if I had turned around, I could have got that on video. Yeah. But uh, right. But and now I've got a, a dash cam that records in 4K on the front oh. and 1080p out of the back window. That's pretty nice. That's a pretty nice setup. That's like a Hollywood setup. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's there's other this there's this other thing that's kind of interesting. This phenomenon that you see, especially on on Skinwalker Ranch, which is whatever whatever this entity or sentience is seems to be uh, precognitive, meaning they kind of, they know what you're going to do before you do it. And they react to what they know you're going to do, which is why it is very difficult to get, you know, to not be able to get, uh, you know, footage besides that they can, you know, electrically manipulate the camera footage. Uh, this, so this becomes, this becomes difficult to, why it's so difficult to document, obviously by design. And even as I'm saying these words, I feel like I sound like a lunatic, but this, these are the stories that credible people are telling. Uh, but it does sound a little nuts. You got to admit, it sounds a little crazy when you say it out loud. Well, these guys, you know, they're, they're not these fly by night, um, military people that they put over there. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. These, these are. These are defense intelligence agency people. Right. These are DARPA. You know, right. uh, Big Bigelow was actually funded by the military um, through grant money right. uh, to the tune of about twenty-two million, and they had very specific questions about Skinwalker Ranch when they went in. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that information is still classified because they compartmentalized it, and they used. Um, contractors mm. which are not don't fall under the freedom of information act oh so interesting the contractors you know use this this kind of black money mm-hmm. to do this research so it, it's it's amazing you know even the fact that now they call it uaps mm-hmm. you know the, the government does ufo has such a historical stigma right yeah that they couldn't they, they couldn't use it anymore. Right, they had yeah. to coin an, a new acronym. And <laughs> yeah. if you're if you're anywhere near the government, you realize the acronyms are dying of dozen. Yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. They come out with them all the time. Yeah. So yeah, so they uh, they used UAP now, unknown aerial phenomenon, you know, which is which is unidentified flying object all over again. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just, someone got a thesaurus and just changed the words. Uh, but I mean, yeah, but UFO, oh, you're a, you're a tinfoil hat wearing lunatic. But if you see a UAP, oh, well, now that's 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 military grade type or, of sighting. We'll take it seriously. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's, you know, how quickly, you know, words change and, and you know, uh, <laughs> it changes the entire outlook. Uh, but, you know, so that's car- that, that, you know, that, the anomaly that was following you is kind of interesting because I was watching your your um, Unsolved Mysteries episode uh, now streaming on Netflix, season three, episode five, uh, if you want to follow along at home. Uh, but you, you uh, I think it's Stan who tells the story about uh, a woman who's driving, you know, kind of a similar story to yours. She's driving down this this lonely road and she sees an anomaly, you know, it's right outside her car. It's following her. You know, it, it seems to just be kind of keeping an eye on her, gets very close, and ultimately it flies off. But the next day she has this this incredible headache, uh, and she never had a migraine before. And I think you guys go out there, and you take a compass to her car, and you find two very strong magnetic anomalies on either side, right behind the driver's side, you know, on the uh, right behind the driver on the left side. 
driver's side, and then right in front of the passenger side, I believe. But you draw a straight line through the driver herself and kind of come to the conclusion that there was either a scanning or some kind of um, electromagnetic pulse that went through the car and caused her to have these headaches. That's kind of interesting, right. you know, especially when you look at, you know, are you familiar with the Havana syndrome? You know, this... Um, Right. Uh, you know, this unknown technology that seems to be afflicting, you know, U.S. CIA um, agents in foreign countries and foreign embassies with similar concussive brain results. Uh, there seems to be I I'm just making this connection now. But, you know, your story, her story, magnetic anomalies, the same type of magnetic magnetic anomalies they found on the Betty and Barney Hill car when they were doing that. The very first abduction case. I did a whole episode on her story as well. Uh, there's a lot of links here that are very interesting. Uh, I don't know. What do you think about all that? Well, um, one of the other things that happened to that car, the, the car itself was pretty new. Uh, we pulled, we pulled the oil filter at, at the request of the start teams. Really? Uh, uh for move on. Okay. And they said, put it, you know, bag it up, send it, uh, give it to us and we'll get it sent to a lab. Uh, they sent it to a lab. It came back with uh, high levels of uh, sodium nitrite okay. in the oil. Uh, sodium nitrite is not a byproduct of oil, and it is not a byproduct of the manufacture of um, oil filters. Okay. So we don't know how, how it had a huge spike in there of sodium nitrite. Uh, for the listeners out there, this is akin to hot dog water. Um, so <laughs> what? Is that right? So, so, yeah. So how it got in there, we had no idea. Uh, yeah. Short, shortly after that case, uh, the water pump goes out. Uh -huh. and, and then the alternator goes out. And, you know, things just start coming, coming apart on the vehicle even though it was brand new and never had a problem before. And she ended up uh, actually taking it in and, and saying, I want a new car. I would imagine so. And she got, she, so she got a new car. And, uh, but uh, it was, it was quite amazing that all these car problems started cropping up right after that incident. Well, I want, yeah, I wonder if, you know, advanced alien technology is covered under her warranty. I mean, I imagine. <laughs> Uh, I uh, I don't think so. <laughs> so that what, what's interesting about that story is that that Mufon knew that there was going to be something odd with the oil filter. Had they seen that before? I mean, is this something that they know to look for, or was this just accidental? Well, the guy that requested it, uh, he was a uh, a physicist, and um, he's just closing off all the different bases as to you know what we can look for. He's the one that told us to go around the vehicle uh, with the uh, with the compass. Oh, interesting. And okay. The magnet and the magnetic signature was so strong, you could be three feet away and move either left or right, and that compass needle would just would just stick right on that spot. Wow. So this is so this is a strong magnetic anomaly that you, that was localized on the car itself. Right. Right. About midway up on the on the panel. Wow. On both sides. That is I mean, that story is so odd for so many different reasons. I mean, not the least of which is why would there be hot dog water in the oil filter? Uh, that, I mean, did he did the physicist have any sort of chemical explanation as to how 
oil or any petrochemical could be converted into sodium? I, I'm trying to think of there aren't really a lot of neither sodium nor nitrate in uh, in petrochemicals, at least. I'm going back to my early, my high school chemistry days, right. uh, trying to rack my brain here, but that doesn't seem possible. Did he offer any any suggestions? No, he didn't, and it's still uh, anomaly today. Um, we have no explanation for why we've got such a large spike. Uh, other than he told me uh, it doesn't naturally occur in oil filters or oil itself. Now, could this be, have you, have you, had you guys heard of this before? Because one of the things that I think is so valuable about what, you know, what you guys do and what a lot of these stories that are investigated properly do is they create a set of circumstances that are common to this type of phenomenon. So you can know what's real and what isn't. So is it possible that this was a one-time anomalous situation that can be kind of ignored? Or is this something that there is a pattern for that people should look for and is one of those interesting, you know, uh, occurrences that kind of signifies a true experience. Well, I really think that for most investigators, uh, they wouldn't think of doing that. And so mm. I think a lot of evidence has gone by the wayside because nobody's ever checked. That it. makes sense. Uh, the thing with the magnetic anomalies, however, has been seen in numerous other cases. Right. And it's uh, it's almost something that you just naturally look for now. Right. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, that that's a I didn't expect that. That's a, that's a super interesting an interesting detail. Uh, but I want to, you know, before we run, run out of time, I want you know, one of the things that I think makes again, what makes what you guys do and did so unique is the critical thinking that goes into the investigation. Right? I mean, I've never been a fan, not to disparage anyone's hobbies or anything, but I've never been a big fan of paranormal investigators in the sense people who go ghost hunting, you know, with all their meters. And uh, it always seems like the people who do it seriously are kind of few and far between. Most people just want to thrill or it's not real science to me. And so when people really put strong investigative police level investigation into this, I always find it to be very, uh, I, th I think that that's a much higher caliber evidence than, than others. And one of the things that I think that's a hallmark of that is when you're able to f see something that looks like a UAP, but you actually find a very mundane solution to it, uh, which is a great story you tell about, you know, seeing some lights and being able to figure out the actual source. So if you could tell me that story uh, where you unfortunately disproved the UAP, but it shows you just the rigor you put into everything. Well, uh, this was Stan's case. Okay. And uh, he, he had a, uh, a gentleman from a community saying that he was seeing uh, uh, UFOs coming up behind the tree line every night mm -hmm. uh, yeah, from a certain location. And so Stan went over with them and, and got all his equipment. We we carried uh, Kestrel uh, weather stations, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that, that handheld deal that you could check the humidity and the barometric pressure and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, he had his quad sheet outs, uh, his compass, everything that he needed to, to see which direction and, and exactly where these things were. Right. And at the appointed time, these lights started coming up and they were flickering, you know, off and on. And and you know, the guy says, there they are, there they are. That's what I'm seeing every night. And Stan, you know, shot an azimuth with a compass 
put it on the on the quad sheet and found out that behind the hill there was a community there okay. with with electric lights. Yeah. And it was during the summer, what they were actually seeing was this temperature inversion mm. that was created by, by hot and cold layers of atmosphere coming together. Yeah. And it was causing the light to diffract and bend. And so it, it actually made the lights rise up, you know, right. like, like you, like you see on the ocean with these ships that are floating in the sky. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so he was able to determine that uh, they were, because the wind was blowing in the pinion juniper there, mm -hmm. uh, it looked like these lights were blinking off and on, mm -hmm. but they were, they were solid lights. And he was able to show by the line that this went right over this community. So uh, case closed. Case closed. Well, and that's great because it shows, you know, what you guys put into it. And when you say that there's something weird going on, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Uh, but when you say there's something weird going on, there's usually something weird going on because you have exhausted all, you know, kind of like Sherlock Holmes. When you've exhausted the impossible, whatever left, however improbable, must be the truth. And you guys kind of live by that. Yeah, uh, we like I said, we look at it. Uh, from an investigative standpoint, you you go into it and you don't have a preconceived idea of what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And you collect the evidence first, you collect the facts first, mm -hmm. and then you go to see if your witness statements fit with what you're seeing. And it just it just keeps going. It's it's systematic. And by the time you're done, you have a very good idea if an incident did occur or Maybe it didn't occur. Right. Or maybe the person is confabulating. Right. Uh, you know, and we've run into those too. Right. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> That's got to be difficult. I mean, I imagine you've got to really develop a sense of, you know, what's real, what's not, right? Like your bullcrap meter has got to be highly tuned because I imagine. You know, especially now, uh, you know, given your rise in popularity, but you must get a lot of stories where you have to really say, I this is this person a reliable narrator, as they say. Right, right. Uh, we we call it vetting. Yes. And yes. we vet we vet people because we have to be able to go into a federal courtroom <laughs> right. and yeah. basically makes sense. basically say, yeah, this person is is good right yeah and what they're going to tell you you know we looked at them now one of the other things that we get as law enforcement officers that most ufo investigators can't do today is we would pry much more into their background mm -hmm. we would ask them you know are you do you use recreational drugs do you use prescription medication and if so what kind mm -hmm. uh do you drink and how much do you drink and and we'd ask all these very revealing questions um but i understand that uh civilian investigators today aren't allowed to ask those questions so they can't really vet people like we did right well there's also you know there's also a strain you know it's interesting because you know just because someone uses recreational drugs doesn't necessarily mean that their story 
is untrue. It just, you have to start seeing things through a different lens and what are the possibilities right. here. And the prescription drugs is interesting because I have a 97 year old grandmother, right? And so, um, you know, she's got a little bit of anxiety, restless legs. She's on a couple of medications to take care of these things. Well, it turns out that the combination she was on caused her to have auditory hallucinations. So she, now she's, you know, hearing weird sounds and people talking. And so we had to figure out, you know, we had to find out and then get her off those things and now try to make those go away. But, you know, she's a normal person who is hearing things and to her, they're real. But if you don't know the prescription interactions, you're not going to realize that what she's it's actually a hallucination and not an experience, not a real experience, an experience rooted in reality. And so, you you know, as you mentioned, you have to ask these questions because while it doesn't necessarily rule out a story, you have to know what's going on to separate, you know, the real fact from fiction, you know. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, that, that was just a, our standard uh, question set that we would ask. And, um, you know, and we tell them up front, this is going to be really embarrassing. Right, but, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, but we need to ask these questions. <laughs> right, you have to. Uh, so I have I have one more question for you as we close up here. You know, I want to end on, on, a, on a good story from you. You've told me several uh, in private that, that are, are just fascinating. Uh, but I know that there's a couple, you know, we'd mentioned missing time, uh, you in a, in a uh, gathering a pizza. I'll put a link uh, to that story as well. Uh, but is there any story you want to close with that's kind of new? Maybe you haven't, you know, told a lot or that's interesting or that you, um, feel like is fun to share. Okay. Um, I'm going to go way, way back. Okay. <laughs> How far I've back never, we going, John? And, uh, about 1964. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and uh, in this case, uh, and I've never told this story to anybody, but so you're you're special. Wow, really? Um, okay, thank you. This is I'm very excited about this, John. You're setting this up great. When when I was growing up, I lived uh, on Temple Street near Echo Park in Los Angeles. Um, I had a reoccurring dream uh, that I kept having, where I walked down the street. I walked down the alley of, of where the house was, which was dirt, went around the corner and down the street. And uh, there's a, a library down at the bottom of the hill, Glendale Avenue and Temple Street. Mm-hmm. So you can you can get on, on any navigation map and look it up. Sure. <laughs> and uh, there was a library there with a big lawn. And then if you went, kept going up the other side because the Temple Street goes down on one side, you hit Glendale Avenue, and then it goes up on the other side. So there's, right. there's like a big dip in there. Yeah, yeah. And as you go back up the hill, there's a baseball diamond up there. And back then, and there was no fence. So the, the baseball diamond was just a little rise and then, you know, flat ground. Mm-hmm. In my dream, I, I'm walking down this. Uh, it's the middle of the night, like one or two in the morning. Uh, with my with my sister, and I'm only six years old or so, and we go down, we go across the lawn, not a sound. I remember that distinctly. We get up to this rise, up to the baseball diamond, and there's a disc-shaped craft hmm. sitting on top. And as I walk underneath with her. Uh, I can see that the metal is uh, burnished, almost a bronze color. Okay. And uh, and I can see pits and scratches and things like that. Um, and this memory, you know, this dream is vivid. 
That's a lot of detail. That's a lot of detail. I see this open hatchway, kind of kind of like a door in in the lower side of the ship, and there's stairs leading up to it. My dream ends right there. That's. But okay. I had I I had that dream for years and years and years. We moved to a, another part of you know over to Highland Park and uh, mm-hmm. into a new house over there. Mm-hmm. Kept having the dream, and so as I grew up, I started watching science fiction, uh, B-rated science fiction movies, mm-hmm. trying to determine where that vision came from that caused those dreams. And I was never able to find anything that would trigger that kind of a memory. And so I became a devotee of, of B science fiction movies, <laughs> black and whites. You know? Your research and, began, and right? Most, yeah, yeah, and I know most of them, you know, yeah. the rest of my life. So, you know, cut forward to about 2006. Mm-hmm. And I'm down in Los Angeles uh, visiting with family uh, for Christmas. And we're sitting around the living room. My mom is there, my brother, my sister, my both sisters. And my older sister starts saying, you know, when I was a kid, I had this reoccurring dream. Hmm. And she starts telling the same story. Wow. Except except I'm over there. We're correcting each other. Oh, we didn't do that. We did this. Oh, we, we didn't go over here. We went there, you know. Yeah. And But it, the basic story is exactly the same independently we had the same dream over and over and over again and then when we get up to we're under the ship i tell my sister i says that's where my dream ends and she looks at me and she says oh no she says you ran right up into that ship whoa whoa and i don't i don't remember any of that and uh, I thought about doing hypnotic regression, but I was told that it would be $75 a half hour. Right. <laughs> and uh, it would take quite a number of sessions to get to that point. And I said, nah, no, thank you. Yeah. Uh, because I, as a ranger, you don't make very much money. Um, later on, I talked to somebody else. And, and by this time, over years and years, all of this has started to change. Hmm. So now they're recommending that you do not get hypnotic regression. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the reality of what you might remember could destroy you. Whoa. And uh, so they're saying that that with these uh, uh, contact people, they're saying we don't recommend that anymore. That's, that's just standard practice now. And uh, so I, I've been able to live with that idea uh, that something might have happened. Yeah. But we're talking the middle of Los Angeles. 1964, yeah, 64. Right. And, you know, I remember that year really well because we we snuck up and looked through a crack and watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's fascinating that, I mean, you have to start looking at the, what are the odds that you and your sister had the exact same dream repeatedly? I mean, she had it repeatedly as well, correct? That's right. I mean, like, what are what are the odds of that? We never talked about it until 2006. Whoa, that and that I mean, that alone is a little strange because as siblings, 
you know, you, you, I'm sure, I don't know how close you were with your sister, but I imagine close enough to talk about weird dreams. If you were having, you know, reoccurring anything, you would have mentioned it. So that's, that's interesting that that happened. And it's also interesting that number one, you told a story about how this ship was kind of following you on this lonely night. You told me stories about missing time. You know, if, if this was, you know, an encounter, Missing time can happen there as well. If you ran up the stairs on that ship, you know, maybe missing time memories, you know, are are uh, deleted, so to speak, from conscious memory. Uh, but there's a lot going on. Maybe right. I, so maybe this is maybe all the stuff that you're experiencing and the stuff that you ended up doing. It's not a coincidence. You know, it, 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 it remains to be seen. Yeah, that is that is a very intense story. And. You know, I know that you're going to be a contact in the desert this year, right? Um, which is, right. you know, that's a, a place where, you know, people with, with similar stories, new techniques on how you can, you know, find out what happened without, as you mentioned, love with a Lovecraftian style going insane by learning these memories because you don't want to do that. Um, but there, you know, it's, it's right. a community of people who are supportive. And you'll be there so people can, you know, share their stories as well. Uh, hopefully I'll be there and, and we can hang out. Uh, but that is that is an intense story. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Um, and it raises a lot of questions about, you know, your connection to all of this. And maybe there's something to that. You know, maybe this started very, very early on and you've got something special. You know, uh, it's uh, it's a, I, a story. I do not consider <laughs> I don't consider myself anybody special. And, uh, you know, that's just how I am. Uh, I don't think I'm special. Well, I think you're special, John, for a lot of different reasons. And not, not, not you know, and your work in this field is absolutely phenomenal. So if people do have, you know, if they want to get in touch with you and learn more, um, how do people, how do people do that? Do they just watch the show? Are you, you know, you used to be the best word of mouth thing going, but I can't imagine that's still the case. How can people get in touch with you? Well, we still have the uh, Paranormal Rangers 86515. Uh, what people need to understand is that both me and Stan are retired mm -hmm. from the Rangers. We do not, we never did, and we, we don't go out and investigate these things for, for just for kicks. Right. Uh, we were assigned these cases. Right. And so we, even today, if you ask us, you know, can you come over here and investigate this? Uh, it, chances are we don't we don't have the ability or the time to do it. Right. Um, and then the, with Skinwalker Ranch, Ancient Aliens, uh, uh, they're that's just going. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's nice to be invited every now and then. Mm -hmm. I know those guys. Mm -hmm. um, we're also going to be at the Roswell incident. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, come coming up in June, and I'll be traveling up to Fairbanks, Alaska in June to the Boreal Bigfoot Conference. Oh man, that's a heck of a trip. Yeah, and there's <laughs> a few other things that are on the horizon that uh, uh, can't really talk about, but people will probably see both me and Stan uh, sometime sometime soon. 
more mysteries, John. You are you are an enigma. Uh, well, I, I'm looking for whatever it is. I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, I'll direct people on where they can get in touch with you. Uh, and of course, if you want to find this show, if you want to, if you're listening to this on our podcast, which you can find at all the major podcast platforms, watch this. you got to see John, uh, you know, watch us on YouTube backslash Daniel J. Glenn if you want to see this interview and, and several others. Uh, but, you know, John, I want to thank you so much for sharing your personal stories, uh, for doing this work. And it is always an honor uh, to get time with you. It's been too long. Uh, you know, what you and Stan did, I think is unique. And it's, you know, I felt like I was finding an indie band when I first talked to you guys <laughs> way back when. <laughs> and now you guys, are, now, you, now you're an arena rock band, you know? And so uh, I'm honored to have been there early on and I saw the potential there and I'm glad that it's, you know, finally being realized and that people get to hear these stories. Because uh, again, top three, you know, credible people doing this work. So thank you for, for your work, your stories and everything. I really appreciate your time today. Okay, well, thank you. It's happy to do this. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. and We even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. And speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.